Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to Series 4, Episode 2. This is CMV with Kirsty Thompson. Kirsty is the clinical lead for UCLH Haematology and a transplant consultant. She guides us through the biology screening, prophylaxis and treatment of CMV. So, so, yeah, so what is CMV? So, CMV, CMV, so a virologist would obviously have a fit at this, but I would say CMV <laughs> is 99% of the time a really boring and unimportant virus. So, it's a member of the herpes family, and that's what makes it really important for us because all of those viruses, once you have had the infection, it remains in your body forever. So, people encounter CMV at some point through their life. It, you don't have to do anything dodgy to get it. It's just one of those things that's out there. By the time people are in, well into adult life, most people have encountered it. You probably have a trivial illness that you don't even notice, and you then are CMV positive for the rest of your life. You have it in your body. And would it be like a flu-like thing? Yeah, or it, it, yeah. it's a trivial illness. I mean, there are. It, it can give. So usually at the extremes of life, in small, in, in babies or in very elderly people, mm. there are situations where it can give a proper and dangerous illness. But in general, CMV infection, the primary infection is usually a relatively trivial thing. And it will lay dormant, will it? And it sits dormant in white cells. So you may well have had CMV. We may all have had CMV. We wouldn't have a clue that we had it and it would give us no problem. We could live to 110 and nothing would happen. The reason that it's important is, the reason that it stays dormant is your immune system has seen the virus, you've generated an immune response and you have cells that are keeping it at bay. So you have an active immune response to it all the time at a low level that keeps it at bay. So it just sits in the white cells and doesn't do anything. The only situation, therefore, that it becomes important is if your immune system is very, very weakened. So most chemotherapy, for example, doesn't actually cause a problem. You have to really, really ablate the immune system in order to have a proper problem with CMV. And the situations where we do that are where you have an allogeneic bone marrow transplant. The other main area where it's caused an issue is not so much nowadays with with effective treatments, but when HIV first emerged and lots of people had full-blown AIDS, CMV was a problem in that scenario as well. So if you take away the T-cells effectively, you have a a real issue with CMV. But occasionally it might crop up in some of our other patients, and it's kind of something that needs to be thought about occasionally if there's a persistent infection. Yeah, so if you've had a, if you've, so sometimes people had CAMPATH, for example, in the CLL, sometimes Mm -hmm. you can have actual CMV reactivation that can cause a problem then. Um, I mean, we don't tend to, you know, if we, if you measured CMV in blood of everybody who's had an autograft, you will have some people with a, who get a transient viremia, but it doesn't tend to cause an issue, so we don't routinely do it. So it's, it is possible in the non-allogeneic transplant setting, but it's sufficiently unlikely that there are very few situations where we monitor CMV. So in terms of like, uh, living with it, so it would just be something that you pick up as a child from nursery or something, or, or any stage, is it? And yeah, it it, just... if you look through the, I mean, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but if you look through the decades, people, progressively the percentage of the population that will have it just goes up and up and up. So by the time we get to it, lots of our patients, as you know, that we do allografts on are in their 50s, yeah. increasing now in their 60s, the majority yeah. of these people are CMV exposed. So that's another member of the same family and the same principles um, pertain. So if you have HSV, the virus stays in your body forever and it, it reactivates much more readily. So you can have a normal immune system and still get recurrent cold sores. CMV is, is the same principle, but you, it's much, much more easily contained by the body. So you really need to have hammered your immune system in order for CMV to reactivate, whereas HSV will intermittently reactivate anyway. The other main ones in the family that we know about are VZV, so 
chickenpox virus, exactly the same principle, stays in your body forever and can reactivate, and EBV as well. The, the thing that is different about HSV and VZV is that we, we use acyclovir as a prophylactic in the transplant patients, and actually a small dose of acyclovir is very effective at suppressing your chickenpox virus. It's slightly less effective with HSV, so we get a bit more of that, but we have drugs that we can use to prophylactically reduce the risk of... Because we don't really worry about it, do no, we? We, we kind don't. of just assume it's covered, but yeah. EBV and CMV yeah. can be real problems. Yeah, they can. Yeah. I mean, we get occasional... Occasionally we get somebody who gets HSV post-transplant and then they get resistance to acyclovir and that becomes problematic because we then have to cycle through our other drugs which are toxic for various reasons and we can get into trouble there, but it's, it's pretty unusual. So when you're matching a, a patient to have a transplant, what would be kind of the worst outcome? Would it be someone with CMV already or, or the donor with CMV? Or... Yeah, what we try to do is if, if the patient has had CMV in the past, we try to match them with a donor who has also had CMV. Because although what we're going to transplant is we're going to transplant a tiny, tiny amount of immune cells from which they have to recreate an entire immune system. Nonetheless, they will probably have some CMV memory cells in there from which they can reconstitute some anti-CMV immunity. So they will manage to control their own CMV much more readily if they've got a donor who's had it in the past. So the exception to that is if you have a sibling donor who's CMV negative, we would still use that person because the benefit of using a sibling donor over using an unrelated donor outweighs the issue of having of being negative for CMV, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's not so important in, in the sibling setting, although we would still prefer to use a sibling that was CMV positive if we had the choice. But certainly in the unrelated donor setting, if you if the recipient is positive, we do not choose a negative donor. Okay. Because then you just get recurrent CMV, mm. recurrent, recurrent, for months and months and months sometimes. I mean, it's a real, real, real problem. Yeah. And potentially the, the sibling is more likely to be sort of matched for CMV anyway because of like the sort of uh, period of time maybe spent in a similar yeah, environment. Or... I, d I don't, I d actually, I don't know if that's true. I don't, don't know that. I mean, theoretically, possibly, yes, but I don't know. In terms of the worst matching and the kind of the best matching, like so if you're negative, negative, a negative donor, negative uh, recipient, th it, there's no chance of CMV reactivation virtually? Correct. Correct. If you're, if you're negative and your donor is negative, there's no chance because you're, you don't have a virus yourself to reactivate and the donor can't give you virus because they don't have any. So actually, sorry, I didn't answer your question properly. The, the worst scenario is where the, the patient has CMV because then you know that they have the virus to reactivate. If the patient is CMV negative, i.e. has not been exposed, and you use a donor that is positive, which we do sometimes do, there is a chance that they will transmit CMV within the white cells in the, in the bone marrow donation, but they might not. So not everybody who has a positive donor will then reactivate. They may or they may not. But whereas if you're a recipient that's positive, you're going to reactivate. So they come in for transplant and there's a risk that they will reactivate at some point. Do we try and protect them from that? Is there prophylaxis for CMV? Okay, so this is actually very timely because there's just been a huge new drug that's come along. So you may have come across it. We started using this drug called Latermavir. Literally, um, this weeks. month. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. yeah. Going, no, okay. So before the beginning of November, the answer is no. We have no effective prophylaxis. Okay. We just have drugs that can treat it. Now, you could use those drugs as prophylaxis, but they're so toxic that we would never use them to, for prophylaxis. So effectively, nobody had any protection against the virus reactivating. And the other thing that's important to say is that in our practice, because we use 
CAMPATH in almost all of our transplants to reduce the amount of lymphocytes in the incoming graft and therefore reduce the risk of graft-versus-host disease, we cause a much more profound depression of the immune system than if you didn't use CAMPATH. And so we see a lot more CMV. So if you've got CMV in you to start with, you're about 90% likely to get a CMV reactivation. So it's a big problem okay. for us. So anyway, there was no prophylaxis until very recently when this drug called Latermavir came along. And Latermavir is an anti-CMV drug which the company have investigated and used in studies and marketed as a prophylaxis. It would theoretically also work as a treatment, but they have probably quite sensibly decided that the market is prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. And they've run a series of trials. We, we actually participated in the phase three, showing that it is effective in significantly reducing the risk of CMV reactivation while you're on the drug. And critically importantly, relative to the other drugs that we have, it doesn't seem to suppress your counts. It doesn't seem to be toxic to your kidneys and it's well tolerated. Is that because it's a kind of a lower dose? No, it's just it works in a completely different way to the ones we have. How will we know like the, its impact? So I think, I don't think there's any formal plan for national evaluation, but I think we're quite keen to, we're obviously very keen to evaluate it locally and it would be useful, I think, if if there was something UK-wide where we collated our data. Because Are most transplant centres going with it? Um, going I, forward, do you think? I would be astonished if any transplant centre wasn't going to use it. Mm. It's been, it was nice approved in the summer and it's, I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Okay. Yeah. So our, our drugs at the moment are Gansycovir, which yeah. suppresses your blood counts, so you can't use that. Foscarnet, which is hideous to your kidneys. And Sodovivir, which is not as bad as either of the two, but is a bit suppressive and a bit kidney toxic. So they're, they're really not drugs you want to try and use. You certainly wouldn't use them prophylactically. So the Termivir we are now giving to everybody that's CMV positive recipient from day naught. And you can give it for 100 days. Wow. Is that a tablet or IV? It's a tablet, yeah. Yeah, once a day. And what wow. do you hope to, <coughs> what's the sort of best expected no outcomes? Yeah. I mean, like no reactivations or fewer? Yeah, or, so yeah. so it'll be interesting to see that the studies were done um, in, a, in a, a sort of a mixed population, some patients with, with T-cell depletion and some patients not. Mm -hmm. So what they found was the actual rate of reactivation in patients with, who were getting Latermavir was just under 20% by I think 24 weeks was their endpoint, versus about 40% in the control population. Now, our patients, our rate of reactivation is effectively 80 to 90%. So oh, wow. I, I don't know. Maybe it will have it. I, maybe it will be a much more profound effect than that. Maybe it will be less. We, we just don't really know. I personally have very high hopes for it, but I, I yeah. you know, might be completely wrong. And how does this drug work? Because we know viruses are difficult to... Uh destroy what does it actually do in the blood so what it does is the the virus when the virus reactivate uh, starts multiplying um, obviously it replicates its own dna and then it gets packaged into a, an entity which then can go off and cause infection or continue to to replicate and the the latermavir interrupts the packaging of the dna into a, into a sort of intact virus particle so it works in a different way to the drugs that we have now. You can still get resistance to it, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. And does this uh, packaging, does that happen like outside of the white cell or is it... It's kind of... in the cell. Okay. And so when we do like the PCR tests, what are we actually kind of measuring just out of interest? So we're measuring virus that's, that's in blood. So a PCR test is a way of identifying things which are present in very, very small quantities. So basically, it allows you to take something which is, would be undetectable by other methods 
And what the PCR test does is it's, is you have little bits of DNA which stick to the entity in question and then multiply it through multiple cycles such that it becomes measurable. So something that you wouldn't be able to see by other techniques, if you do a PCR test, you amplify the amount of that thing in your test sample and you can then measure it. And I guess for the context of what did CMV, did a recognition look like before that method? So there are other methods which relate, which, which rely on actually identifying virus infection. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing, so maybe the terminology is confusing, but what we're doing by doing our weekly PCR, we are picking it up when it's not caused any kind of infection. It's, it's just amplifying in blood. Mm -hmm. The other methods would be waiting until it caused some sort of infection and you can identify it. So sometimes we still, we still occasionally get people who get actual CMV disease. If it starts multiplying in blood and you don't treat it, then eventually it will cause a natural infection. You get disease in an, in an organ. We still occasionally get that, so we sometimes see it in people's bowels. So you do a biopsy and you can see the virus in there. In the days before, And it wasn't showing on the blood? It, no, it would be. It would, oh, it would be, yeah. be yeah, no, yeah. Sometimes even with treatment we get people... It's going up anyway. Yeah, we yeah. get people who get end-organ disease. But before the days of effective treatment for CMV, it was a real, real problem because if you leave it... Uh, and you don't have treatment for it, you get it eventually causing a problem in any one organ and the classic place is it going into your lungs. And if you get a CMV pneumonitis, then you'll die of that almost certainly. We very rarely see it now, but in the days before effective treatment, it was a significant problem. We are undoubtedly preemptively treating more people who have just a virus level going up in the blood than would otherwise die of CMV in the end if we didn't treat them, but we have no way of identifying the people who are going to go on and get a CMV pneumonitis and dying versus the people who, whose immune system might get on top of things itself and just clear it out. So you end up, you treat everybody. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So CMV can affect any organ, can't it? Well, what are the most common? Obviously lungs, so, I've seen it in like, a lot of eyes. Yeah, so, the, so I think the most common that we see is we still get a bit of CMV colitis. So they're often the people that come in with horrible diarrhoea, they may have norovirus because lots of them have, they probably have some graft-versus-host disease. We try and treat them for graft-versus-host disease, they've got CMV in the blood. Often if they've had CMV at relatively low levels for a while, it's something to do with the length of time you've had it in the blood you then sometimes get it in, in the bowel as well. And it's important to know because if you think it's just graft-versus-host disease, you're going to keep flogging them with lots of steroids. Whereas actually, if they've got CMV colitis, you want to reduce the steroids and you need to treat with CMV drugs, even if the blood level becomes negative. So it's an important thing to identify. And the other place that we tend to see it, and we haven't seen it for ages, but we get little clusters of them, is retinitis. So exactly as you say, people will... Again, it's when they've had it in the blood for quite a while and then they say, oh, their vision's gone a bit funny and they get CMV in, in their eye and that's pretty unpleasant. We very, very, very rarely see a CMV pneumonitis because if you treat it promptly, you tend to avoid that problem. But the patients that get CMV pneumonitis, I, I, in my experience, I've seen it very rarely a handful of times and, and the patients have always died. Yeah, I, I, I had a couple at King's, I remember. You can get it in the liver as well. I don't yeah. think I've seen that. And the brain? Uh, yes, you can get encephalitis, yes. Yeah. We've had one, I think I've only seen one actually. I mean, the reason we treat it is we want to stop people dying of CMV. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. It causes a huge amount of problem because the treatment itself is toxic. It involves people being back in hospital often for long periods of time. It can make a real mess of their kidneys. It can make a real mess of their blood counts. So we get lots and lots of problems because of the treatment. Yeah. Um, but it's to try and prevent people dying. So at the moment, the treatment is 
Gansaik, the Bao Gansaik, all, all those yeah, kind of, yeah. and that's the only drugs. Yeah, so, so our, our treatment of choice, we used to give IV Gansaikovir and we've just sort of morphed not deliberately, but it just has happened. We've moved to oral valgansacrid yeah. just because it's so much more convenient than the whole malarkey with CAD pumps and yeah. uh, all that. So we've moved to oral valgansacrid. It's easy to take. It's well tolerated and it's effective, but it is um, myelosuppressive, so it pushes down the blood counts. And so you've got to be really careful using it in the immediate post-transplant period. Some patients have got rubbish counts, so you don't start it. And some people, you start it and their counts drop and they become neutropenic again, so you have to stop it. So if they either start off with ropey counts or else their counts fall on valgansacrivir, you have to change to foscarnet. And foscarnet means you have to come into hospital, although we have a good AC pathway now, so mostly they go to Ambicare. But they need to come in because once you start taking foscarnet, it's toxic to the kidneys and also you leak electrolytes, so lots of them get a huge potassium and magnesium requirement. It's horrible stuff. Yeah. And it's really tough for patients, isn't it? Very. Because they're just kind of getting home and yeah. hopefully yeah. starting to recover in and an feeling hour. like they're making some progress and then having to come in for what might be a week or two weeks or three weeks yeah, without yeah. sort of being, really knowing how long it will take. Yeah. And it makes them sick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a whole problem with CMV. It's very yeah. difficult. We try to warn them beforehand, but I think they get so much information yeah. they kind of forget it. But yeah. often the tempo of CMV reactivating is just, you just get home and you feel, you're starting to feel okay and you're getting to eat something that's not hospital food and yeah. things are looking up. And then we phone up and say, actually, you need to come back in. And you're right, it's, it's psychologically, it's very tough. And it also makes you feel a bit sick. And then it's like, here we go again, isn't it? Yeah. Back in, yeah. blood tests, yeah. twice a day. And actually the other thing that's important about it is that the, just the kinetics of CMV reactivation, that you usually need to treat people for three or four weeks, particularly in that first reactivation, because the immune system is so weak at that time. So they're coming in, they often have to come back in for a month. I mean, it's pretty hard. When they're off cyclosporine, does reactivation more or less, the risk is kind of... Yeah, it, it doesn't correlate, I mean, it, it does correlate with cyclosporine, but it, irrespective of what we're doing with the cyclosporine, your immune system is gradually getting stronger in those months following transplant. So some people will only have one reactivation and then their own immune system can keep on top of it. Others will have more than one. And actually, if you have graft-versus-host disease and you need steroids, then that will push the immune system down again, so it makes it more likely. But usually by three or four months, most people, the immune system's got stronger, we're starting to reduce the and Usually at that kind of time, they're getting they're getting a grip of it, and they don't get reactivations beyond that. But there's a there's a small cohort who will get problems beyond that. We may see with latermivir that we get much less reactivation to day 100, but when we stop the latermivir, we might start seeing much more reactivation at that point. But we'll see. Is there anything we're doing with manipulating T cells that might be helping with CMV reactivation or in the future? So we did, we did try, we did run a series of trials of CMV specific T cells, and it seems like they have some efficacy, but it's, it's a very cumbersome process. It's and it's expensive and, yeah, and time consuming, and it's very, it requires specialized skills and resources. So it's not completely gone away, but I don't, I don't think anybody believes that's the future of, of CMV management. There was another study actually, Emma Morris had a study where they engineered T cells. So they, from recipients, sibling recipients that were CMV negative, okay. they took T cells and they put a T cell receptor against CMV into those cells. The bottom line just about that was that they tried a few patients, but it's a really, really difficult study to deliver, very, very complicated, and actually it hasn't been taken forward. 
when I was at King's, we used to give everybody high dose acyclovir three times a day throughout the whole of the transplant and we were always told that that was to prevent the CMV. Yeah, so there is some, there's a smidgen of evidence that if you use absolutely massive doses of acyclovir, you can make a small effect on CMV reactivation. But it's, clinically, it's not really a noticeable result, so otherwise everybody would do it. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. I don't know I, enough about the actual history of it, but I, there, there, was, there was some suggestion at one point and some people took it on, but it, it hasn't borne fruit. I mean, it would be a nice, simple thing. But, yeah. Yeah. So apart from the blood tests and obviously them getting... Yes. You, you effectively don't get CMV disease without having it in the blood first. Right, okay. So that's why the blood tests are really critical. So I don't know. I mean, some viruses we have effective treatment for, others we don't. I mean, a lot of the problem with the viruses relates to how rapidly they mutate and evolve and can escape treatment. So, you know, for example, post-transplant... I mean, I think the main, the main toxicity in terms of infection after an allogeneic transplant is viruses. Bacteria, I mean, Vanya might say something different. Bacteria in general, we can treat them. Fungus, we have drugs for. But viruses, a lot of the viral problems that we have, we just don't have effective treatments. So respiratory viruses are a huge cause of, of morbidity and post-allograft. And indeed, I think respiratory viruses are the beginning of the end for many patients. Many patients end up dying because of the complications of developing a, a major respiratory viral infection post-transplant. And we have almost no treatment. So we have a treatment for influenza. And I think influenza probably causes less death in the allograft patients because of the fact that we have a treatment. But the others that are, are just awful are parainfluenza, RSV, metanumavirus, and even things like the common cold, the rhinoviruses, the coronaviruses, they can give chronic, long-standing chest problems in these patients. If you do get a respiratory viral infection, because of the way that graft-versus-host disease works, if you have an organ that's inflamed and irritated, you're more likely to recruit an immune response. So if you get a respiratory viral infection, it's very well recognised, you're much more likely to get graft-versus-host disease in your lungs. And pulmonary graft-versus-host disease is, is hideous. It's very difficult to treat. It wrecks people's quality of life, and they often end up dying. So it's one of the... It's probably some... I don't know, in, in the inpatient wards... You see people coming in probably with that problem yeah. and then they go out and they suffer in the community for a while and then you see them again in their in their terminal admission and they often end up going to ITU, get yeah. put on a ventilator and, and then die. But I would say overall, if we could deal with one viral group, it would be respiratory viruses because they are such a problem for us and we have no treatments. I mean, ribavirin is used in RSV. It really doesn't do very much. In the laboratory, ribavirin is quite effective against RSV in a human adult transplant patient, it does almost nothing. In fact, I don't think it really does anything, but we do use it because it's there. But otherwise, paraflu, any of the other ones we have no treatment for. Which is why it's so important that we that isolate. We, exactly, that our yeah. that our simple precautions against transmitting respiratory infections, that we adhere to them. And it's really difficult. You know, staff members, if they have a cold, they should stay away from work. I know it causes all sorts of yeah. problems. Admitting patients, we shouldn't admit patients that have got dreadful respiratory symptoms onto our ward, but obviously beds are tight in the tower, so there's lots of pressure on us just to consume our own smoke. But it's a real, real problem. We need to, to try and do everything we can to minimise the risk of transmission of respiratory viruses. Yeah. I mean, I'd say we, because of our constraints around the availability of T8 beds, we have to 
we end up with a lot of patients with these viruses on our wards, and actually, it's testament to the nursing staff's skill that we there's very little horizontal transmission from one patient to another. But it's just really, really important that we're very vigilant about about hygiene and isolation. Do you mind if I ask about um, why you chose haematology to work? So when I was, I did, I did general medicine uh, junior doctor training and then I decided I didn't really want to do clinical medicine so I went off and did some immunology research for five years and I got to the end of that and realised that I wasn't going to be a scientist and I wanted to do something that was, that was a bit clinical and had some interesting science in it and haematology seemed appealing and it was a, a fairly random choice at the end of a long period of research. And then I started doing haematology and really enjoyed it. But it was a, it, it's not that I started off with a burning desire to do haematology, because I really didn't. It was just one of those things. Did you do it as a junior doctor? What I didn't do it at all. Oh, I see. Okay. I didn't do it at all. And in fact, when I was doing my junior doctor training, the haematology unit was entirely separate. So in fact, I didn't do a single bit of haematology all through my junior doctor training. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's all for, I suppose that's good for the junior doctors now to know that you know you you actually didn't do any kind of training at that stage that they're at, and you're still managed to you know be in charge by all service <laughs> at the biggest place in Europe. So well, I think people feel under pressure that they should come out of medical school with a very with a clear plan already, and they feel a bit stressed if they don't have a clear plan. And I would say to anybody, it just let it let it come, mm. um, and don't be in a rush to do anything. And uh, sometimes people do one thing and then they change their mind and do something else. You'll be a very, very long time in a job. I mean, goodness me, yeah, we all rush to get to our jobs and then, gosh, the next, the, the decades roll out ahead of us in a rather depressing way. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I've only got 30 years left in this job. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when you started doing the haematology, was that at UCLH or was that...? Well, my first... So I went for a registrar job, which I didn't get, and I didn't actually... I didn't... This is another thing that junior doctors should, shouldn't worry about. I didn't get the first three jobs I went for. Um, so I took um, a locum post at, uh, actually it was in, in London at the Royal Free and then I had another locum post at St Mary's and that was at the UCH rotation. So in terms of your role at UCLH, you're one of our haematology consultants, uh, transplant and clinical lead. So how do you kind of juggle that time and what does that look like? Well. The clinical lead role, it takes up my time actually for a significant part of every week, but it also comes in fits and starts, so there's periods where it's extremely busy. So for example, around phase four, it's kind of ramping up a bit there. I Like everybody, I think the, the clinical side is it's quite difficult to try and work that in well. I don't know that any of us have cracked it really. When you're attending, things are just really, really busy and you have to try and not do as many other things as possible, but there are some things you can't avoid. Um, so things inevitably get somewhat neglected while you're attending and then you try and catch up afterwards. Um, in terms of the clinics, we all just run our clinics as normal while we're attending. So that's another reason that it gets a bit busy. But yeah, I think I just do it the way that everybody tries to do it. Because you were on tape recently. Um, was there anything in particular that you thought the nurses were doing well or something that you picked up on the wards that could maybe be improved? Well, actually, the thing that struck me most about the month that I was on is the first month that I've done where we've had a lot of car patients. Yeah. So mm. I'd say it was a very steep learning curve for me 
because they're very different. You know, you get used to a transplant patient, they get a fever, they drop their blood pressure, you think, well, it's sepsis. Well, with a CAR patient, it might be sepsis or it might be CRS. And the, treat- the treatment obviously is very different. And the whole neurotoxicity is just a quite bewildering. Mind-filled. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. for me, it was a very steep learning curve. And I would say the the thing that struck me most was actually how incredibly well the nursing staff managed these problems. Everybody seems up to speed on understanding what you need to look out for on the scoring system for the neurotox, on keeping a close eye on people. And I, I, I was, because it's one of the things you worry about, you see somebody in the evening and then, well, what's going to happen overnight? And actually, I felt very reassured by how well all of the nursing staff manage these issues. They're very proactive and it was, it was very good. So actually, I would like that to be passed on. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Anything we need to improve? <laughs> uh, fighting this yet? <laughs> fighting for a wow. Oh, I know. <laughs> Gosh. No, I know. I don't. I don't. I mean, you know, we, we all can improve things, but I didn't. I, I was, I, no, I was really impressed by the care. And actually also, I think, just if we're going to talk about the, the nursing staff on the ward in general, I think the most important thing, apart from the skills of looking out for problems with patients and dealing with and picking up those problems, the, the most important thing is that uh, is being being kind to patients and treating them gently and with respect and I think our staff are great at that mm. and it's a, it's such an important thing. <laughs> <laughs>